childhood cancer. It's a terrible diagnosis, a terrible trauma for the child and for their entire families, and one that leads parents from around the world to bring their children to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles for treatment. But imagine if, as you sit in the waiting room with other parents whose kids are also in for similar treatment, you begin to notice that a lot of them, too many for coincidence, are from your exact same neighborhood. And then you realize... Pediatric cancer is incredibly rare. There should be no way that another child lives on our street. And he did. I could just almost point to exactly where all the kids in our community live uh, with cancer nearby. So as we started learning about that, we mapped ourselves out on Google Maps, all of the parents who met each other and started wonder. And in the middle of a big 10-mile ring, it was the first time I saw something called the Santa Susana Field Lab. Well, there is nothing on earth more powerful than a parent, especially a mother, defending her child against whatever threatens their safety. And when it means protecting them and everyone else, from a radiological dumping ground and nuclear meltdown site virtually in your own backyard that you didn't know about, and it's less than 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles, you can't avoid the fact that your home, your neighborhood, your subdivision, town, and city are smack in the middle of that dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk about an exciting new documentary film about the Santa Susana Field Lab, the toxic, radioactive, former Rocketdyne site only 30 miles northwest of downtown Los Angeles. We talk with Derek Smith, one of the producers of that film, and Melissa Bumstead, the Simi Valley mother who put together the picture of childhood cancer cases in proximity to that site and has been a towering force in fighting for a full cleanup to background levels ever since. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we will ever hear from Matt Gates. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 13th, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in Japan, where after months of hints and semi-statements that conditioned us to what's happening now, Japan has finally announced, to nobody's surprise, that it will release more than one million tons of radioactively contaminated water from the wrecked Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean, a decision that has angered neighboring countries, including China and Korea, 
as well as those in the local fishing industry. Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga previously said that the government had put off figuring out what to do with all of the radioactively contaminated water building up at the destroyed Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant for long enough, and it was time to start dumping it into the ocean. Suga's hand was forced, given that the facility will soon run out of space to store contaminated groundwater that has been seeping into it. This according to the Japan Times. Suga is also framing the controversial plan to release the water into the Pacific Ocean as unavoidable. A few lies or misrepresentations to be aware of in the stories that are coming out. Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, as well as Japanese government officials, say that tritium, the radioactive material most prominent but not the only radioactive material in the water, is, quote, not harmful in small amounts. That completely ignores the problem of bioaccumulation, where a small amount of radiation gets eaten by plankton, gets eaten by larger critters, gets eaten by small fish, large fish, larger fish, and then by us. Also, according to the Beer 7 report, Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation, there is no such thing as a safe dose of radiation. It all counts, it all bioaccumulates, and it's all bad. Two other misrepresentations. They like to say releasing the water into the sea. Every time you hear that, you need to replace it with Pacific Ocean. And also the claim that they will be diluting the tritiated water that is in the water tanks so that it is safe. But the problem is with the concept of diluting radiation because the smallest possible unit that releases radiation is a single atom. What they are talking about is not diluting, like with a poison, where it gets less and less and less powerful and potent and dangerous, but what they're doing is dispersing it, meaning spreading it out further. It may be just a single atom, but all the single atoms are going farther and farther away to more and more places, and every one of them can create danger. And if that's not enough, According to the Mainichi, which is a major Japanese news source, of the 85,000 containers holding radioactive waste placed in radiation-controlled areas of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, the contents of about 4,000 have not been identified. And this again is according to TEPCO. The company says it will formulate a survey plan and proceed to determine what they hold. Gee, so soon? Last month, TEPCO confirmed that the contents of a container in the waste storage area at the nuclear facility were leaking due to corrosion at the bottom of it. When the Fukushima prefectural government inspected the site, it also found four containers that TEPCO didn't know about. The maximum radiation level on the surface of the containers was 1.5 millisieverts per hour. Meanwhile, the government of Japan is offering lucrative grants to keep aging nuclear reactors running. The central government of Japan is offering billions of yen in new grants to Fukui Prefecture to allow a nuclear plant operator to run its aging reactors beyond their planned operational lifespan of 40 years. Up to 2.5 billion yen, or 22.6 million U.S. dollars, will be provided per nuclear reactor to a prefecture preparing to respond to the extension of the 40-year life of the reactors. So it's not a grant. 
It's a bribe. Osaka-based Kansai Electric Power Company is pushing to reactivate three reactors in Fukui Prefecture, two at the Takahama nuclear plant in Takahama and one in Mihama, putting them in line for 7.5 billion yen or something over 67 million U.S. dollars. But, but, Fukushima, radioactive waste, the citizens' data radiation map of Japan, which shows that the radiation from Fukushima went throughout the country. (sighs) Over to the U.S., where more than three years after he and six other nuclear activists entered Kings Bay Naval Base, home to six Trident nuclear submarines, in order to peacefully protest nuclear weapons and the threat of nuclear war, a federal judge sentenced Mark Colville to 21 months in prison. Mark is the last of the Kings Bay Plowshares 7 to be sentenced. Prior to the trial, Mark had already served about 15 months of his sentence, which will count towards his 21 months. Mark told the court that its refusal to recognize the right of his family and community, quote, to live without a nuclear gun on hair-trigger alert held perpetually to our heads has placed it firmly in a posture of criminality. He went on to say, This government, in its lawlessness, has hidden first-strike weapons with enough firepower to kill six billion people. The court has a responsibility to allow the law to be applied beyond the fence at Kings Bay. Offense that I and my loved ones, with much fear and trembling, freely answered the call of faith, the call of conscience, and the call of generations yet unborn to breach. As with all six of his co-defendants, Mark was also ordered to share a payment of restitution of $33,503.51, supposed damages incurred, but that's calculated at government rates, so if you take out the pork and the fluff, it's probably $142. Mark was also sentenced to three years of supervised provision. As to his co-defendants, four remain in jail, but another, Father Steve Kelly, was freed from prison today after three years and eight days imprisoned in various county jails and federal facilities. In court today, He admitted to the probation violations and was given time served and set free, having served the maximum six months in addition to his plowshare sentence. Steve exited the courthouse to be greeted by 40 supporters who had been vigiling outside. Now, he's required to report to the probation department in Georgia within three days to begin three years of supervised release as part of the Kings Bay plowshare sentence. He has already announced that he does not intend to comply with that and is expecting a visit from U.S. Marshals. For those of you planning hiking, backpacking, and sightseeing trips to the Grand Canyon, you need to know that just 10 miles south of the entrance to the south rim of the Grand Canyon, the Canyon Mine hopes to strike it big, mining one of Earth's deadliest elements, uranium. The mine extends over 1,400 feet down into the Earth's surface, and critics a.k.a. sane people, worry it could scar the Grand Canyon itself and pollute a nearby tribe's water. Since 2016, Canyon Mine has been taking on water, and as of the end of 2020, over 40 million gallons of water contaminated with constituents including but not limited to uranium and arsenic have been pumped out of the mine shaft, almost 10 million gallons in 2020 alone. Also in 2020, 
uranium levels in the mine shaft water were on average four times the Environmental Protection Agency's safe drinking water standard. Already, certain areas of the Grand Canyon have marked off water sites as being inappropriate for hikers and backpackers to use because of uranium contamination. At eternal perpetual risk, is the aquifer underlying the area and the entire system of seeps and springs of the Grand Canyon that feed the homelands of the Havasupai tribe. And a footnote to history, every time I try and post about this on the Facebook Grand Canyon Hikers and Backpackers page, it gets deleted. In Florida, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has proposed a $150,000 fine to Florida Power and Light Company for falsifying plant records and recording inaccurate data in their maintenance records at the Turkey Point Nuclear Power Plant south of Miami. After two investigations completed in 2020, the NRC determined that Florida Power and Light employees in 2019 falsified information in a work order associated with the inspection and maintenance of a safety-related check valve. The second investigation confirmed that two technicians deliberately provided inaccurate information in maintenance records related to a mispositioned plant component. The NRC also found a supervisor and a department head influenced others within the department to conceal this maintenance error. Citing the grave threat, Scientific American magazine announced that it would stop using the term climate change in its articles about man-made global warming and substitute climate emergency instead. Scientific American senior editor Mark Fischetti said, Journalism should reflect what science says. The climate emergency is here. In Greenland, that country's left-wing environmentalist party has won the election, after it promised to halt a mining project that could have made Greenland a major source of rare earths and uranium, but at a potentially steep environmental price. This issue was the topic of a film by Lisa Autogena, Kanersut Kvanfjeld, which was featured at the 2019 International Uranium Film Festival held in Window Rock, New Mexico on Navajo Nation land. If you want to learn more of the background on this mine, we interviewed Lisa for Nuclear Hot Seat number 385, which aired on November 7 of 2018. The executive director of the International Uranium Film Festival, Norbert Suchenek, pointed out the parallels between what happened in Greenland and what happened in Portugal, where farmers in the town of Nisa voted against a uranium mine being located next to their lands. In the film Cheese Instead of Uranium by Suchinek, one of the farmers says, no one will buy meat from a lamb that has lived next to a uranium mine. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. A mammoth 984-foot gigayacht is planned to sail the open seas while housing 160 scientists working on board 22 laboratories and in a giant space sphere. This vessel is guaranteed to be packed with green technology and the capacity to hold more than 400 people and introduce features found on cruise, expedition, research, and luxury yachts and more. 
Naval architect Ivan Salas Jefferson said, We wanted to create a design that would inspire them to protect the earth, to become an alchemist of global solutions. And what powers this gigayat? Nuclear. A molten salt reactor. So forget about clean, green, and saving the planet and all those scientists who are going to be on board. The brainiacs behind this gigayat, which is not supposed to launch until 2025 and may not get there, all of you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. Nuclear problems are going to continue to be with us forever. It's just the nature of the beast. From uranium mining, to weapons production, to radiation-leaking reactors, to still not having a way to safely store the deadly radioactive waste produced by all these endeavors, nuclear is industry and government run riot, not caring how they contaminate the world as long as they keep making obscene profits and fool themselves into thinking that they are not affected by the consequences of their actions when they most definitely are. Meanwhile, we all have to deal with the dangers of radioactive contamination that will not go away on its own, ever. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat, to get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity, and context, as well as a healthy dose of skepticism, and with a much deeper and nuanced telling than you would ever expect on mainstream media. We get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week, with fresh information and unrelenting perspective, and even, when possible, humor. That is why now would be the right time to support us with a donation. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can help us with a donation of any size. And that same red button is where you can now set up a monthly recurring donation. If you make it $5, that's the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So... Treat Nuclear Hot Seat to a metaphoric cup of coffee. Please, do what you can now, so that we can keep bringing you stories and episodes like this one. And know that however much you can help us out, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Films can change the world especially when they pull the curtain back on previously underreported nuclear accidents, problems, and dangers. We saw this happen for North St. Louis with the film Atomic Homefront, which influenced the federal government to get off its duff and institute a cleanup of the toxic radioactive waste dump that is the Westlake landfill. That was a result of years of constant, consistent pushing and community organizing by Just Moms STL, a group founded and led by local moms Dawn Chapman and Karen Nickel. Now another group, headed by another mom who is fighting for her children and, by extension, all the rest of us. And that pits her against the site of the worst nuclear meltdown in American history, thought to have released as much as 200 times the radiation as Three Mile Island. And now there's a film about that woman and that battle. Melissa Bumstead and her daughter Grace are the focus of In the Dark of the Valley, 
a new documentary that brilliantly recounts the history of the Santa Susana Field Lab, just north of Los Angeles, and the struggle to get it cleaned up. We talk with Melissa and one of the producers of the film, Derek Smith. When it's over, we'll let you know how you can view In the Dark of the Valley digitally for a limited period of time. I spoke with Melissa Bumstead and Derek Smith on Friday, April 9, 2021. Melissa Bumstead and Derek Smith, thank you so much for joining me today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. And again, really, thank you for watching and having a platform that speaks to this. It's an honor to be on here. So thank you. Let's get started with a little bit of background from you, Melissa. You have been spearheading the fight for the cleanup of Santa Susana Field Lab for many years now. The audience may not be familiar with your story, probably many of them are not, so please explain how and why you got involved in this fight. The cleanup fight has actually been going much longer than I have been involved with it. Committee to Bridge the Gap, Physicians for Social Responsibility, three incredible ladies over in Simi Valley. I am an accidental activist and I didn't get involved to about five or six years ago after my daughter was diagnosed with an incredibly rare form of leukemia. And through treatment at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, we just kept meeting more and more families that live nearby. Pediatric cancer is incredibly rare. It sh there should be no way that another child lives on our street. And he did. I could just almost point to exactly where all the kids in our community live with cancer nearby. So as we started learning about that, we mapped ourselves out on Google Maps, all of the parents who met each other and started wonder. And in the middle of a big 10 mile ring, it was the first time I saw something called the Santa Susana Field Lab. And through a lot of research, talking with epidemiologists, experts, came to find out that it's the site of one of America's worst nuclear accidents, potentially releasing over 200 times the amount of radiation with one of their reactor meltdowns, 200 times more than the Three Mile Island. And so I've kind of dedicated my life these last few years sharing my daughter's story. I think that's what's really moved some mountains for us is people see now that the children that their choices are affecting and impacting and doing all we can. It's definitely out of my comfort zone. I feel like every morning I wake up at zero and try to figure out, learn what I need to do today. You know, it's so important. And it wasn't until recently we realized how widespread this problem was. We're hoping that with the really comprehensive cleanup that we're fighting for here might even help it set a new standard across the nation of what a cleanup should look like. Here's hoping. What has been the hardest thing, the hardest block you have faced during your time in this struggle? For me, I think the PTSD. For a while, we were still adding kids that we met to the little map that we had made. And I found myself grieving for one to two days every time because it just made me remember the day my daughter was diagnosed and the day she relapsed and got the bone marrow transplant, mental health days. I take them frequently because it's very personal. You know, this isn't a story or someone else's home. This is my home and my community and my children. Derek, what is your background as a filmmaker? When did you first become aware of the Santa Susana Field Lab and what led you to consider it as the subject of a film? The director, Nicholas Mim, and I went to school together. We went to Arizona State. Uh, my brother, who's the third, producer and he was the cinematographer on the job. Well, he's my brother. So we all came together after graduation and sort of formed a company. And what we were doing from time to time was we were working on client projects like 
little two to four to five minute videos here and there. Some of them were in style magazine, outside magazine, so on and so forth. And then in February of 2018, change.org reached out and Melissa called herself an accidental activist. We were accidentally interested, I guess you could say in a sense, because <laughs> we had no idea about Santa Susana and we were living I want to say 25 miles away from the site. I'd lived in LA for eight years. Same for Nick, same for Brandon. And change.org came to us with a petition video for four to seven minutes. They wanted a video, which was the change.org existing video now for the petition. And what we realized through that project was, holy smokes, four to seven minutes is not enough time to tell this story. We also know now that a hundred minutes isn't enough time to tell this story, but we're getting there. We're getting closer. So we spent from essentially February to 2018 until a couple of weeks ago, trying to download every bit of knowledge that we could and to try and tell this story through, you know, the lens that is the amazing Melissa Bumstead. And we are so grateful for the opportunity because, you know, not only do you learn a lot and become aware of your surroundings and the community that you're raised in and that you live in, but you meet these amazing folks. Melissa, Denise, Dan, all these people in the film. And it's just like, you wake up in the morning and you think about what they're doing every day. And you're like, okay, you know what? I should put my socks on and <laughs> go drink coffee and get things going because they're inspiring. So long story short, change.org introduced us originally to the project and we independently wanted to tell the objective story. And that led us to you. What shocked you most about the information that you learned in the course of your research? I think initially, just because the visual in itself, in the film, you see Melissa standing at a podium. This is early on in her activist days, I believe. And she's talking about how she started to recognize different cases in her neighborhood. And in the film, you, there's this visual where we sort of pull out of a map and you see the little dots that Melissa originally drew up for us of where these cancer cases were, where these different individuals primarily children were and what cancers they had. And once you see the visual of that, it's much different than hearing it or reading it. You're like, oh my gosh, they're all extremely close together. And then you start the domino effect, which is, okay, it's a 60% increase of cancer rates in the area. I think by definition, even though it can't be proved, seems to be a cancer cluster. From that point on, it was an avalanche of information that we still stumble on We'll email Melissa and Denise and Dan and be like, are we getting this right? And they'll be like, no, you're not, but here's the right answer. And so it's, there's a lot, but I think at the end of the day, it's, you recognize one thing that happened. There was an issue, there was negligence, there was an action, and it led to a valley that is struggling with the effects of it. Melissa, what was it like for you to be approached to be part of, and certainly a focus of this film? Or did you approach them as the potential focus? How did that come about? They approached me. And like you said, through the change.org video, pretty much anyone who's going to play around with my kids and be friendly is someone I'm going to trust. You know, someone who gets kids to me, that's a easy way to know who's a good person. And only the day, maybe two that they shot at my house. I think it was one day for probably even less than an hour or so. My kids were practically hanging off of them, begging them not to leave. So when they came back a while later and said, we are thinking about doing this film, they were 
I'd actually gotten a couple other offers and it, it just didn't feel right. And I knew if this story was going to be told, it would be very difficult to not put a political slant on it, not to put a poor me slant on it, not to put a like superwoman slant on it. You know, there's just so many nuances of, of what's happening here. And I felt these are the only guys who I would trust to tell this story. And then, and I was just blown away by not only the beautiful work they did and capturing the intimacy and the nuances of the problem, you know, they're just really nice guys. My family loves having them over when they came over. I think we'll be a little bit sad now that the film's over. Thank you. And to keep going, Melissa, tell us more about how great we are. <laughs> about you. <laughs> <laughs> that does mean a lot. Derek, you explained that this is kind of an old school, family-based, friend-based project, at least in terms of your company. How did the project come together as a project as opposed to just a really good idea? A lot of support, a lot of help from those that are around us, even people that are directly related to the film, like Melissa and her family. I mean, anytime we needed something, people were always making themselves available to us. And at the end of the day, these things don't get done without community, a team effort and help. They're little things that you don't really think about, like the minute details of animation and the scheduling of animation and things like that that are part of the film. And so being able to have someone like Elise Kelly, who is our animation director on the film, come in and just put endless hours with her team taking unnecessary pay cuts in order to do it because they believed the story and they were affected emotionally by Melissa and the other mothers. It was something like that where people, they started to see the trailer and the sizzle and they became attached to it and they wanted to help. And so because of that, I think that's why the project got done. There was a will on Nick's shoulders, the director, to edit the film when we weren't able to really combat the COVID situation. And so he sort of took it into his hands and um, started editing the film. And Brandon and I were in separate locations. So what, we were doing what we could to help him out and assist him with his edit. But I think you get to a point where you realize no one's going to finish this unless we take the initiative. And Nick did that. And then we had a crazy amount of generous help, support from friends, family, community members. Yeah, it doesn't get done without everyone. That's what took it from an idea to a finished product. Did you have the backing of any kind of major production outlet or distribution outlet? Any big name behind it? Early on, we had a friend who worked with an exec at Village Roadshow Television. And it's one of our close friends. She had helped on the film as well. And she connected us with her friend at Village Roadshow. We went in and met with them. And she became a huge part of the project. She was at the, Melissa, I'm not sure if you met her, but Shannon was at the 60th anniversary were. And I guess early on, Village Roadshow decided that they would help in shopping the film. But financially, it was independent outside of Village Roadshow. There wasn't any other connection. I have to break in here with how much an admiration I am of the finished product mm. because the pacing of it, the editing of it, the thoroughness of the information and the clarity with which it is presented is truly remarkable. It's an incredibly complex story with a lot of moving parts. And my sense of it is even for somebody who knew nothing about Santa Susana Field Lab, it plays it out in such a way that you stick with it. And the animation is brilliant. 
it illustrates it without being too precious or look at me or isn't this being cutesy it all worked so my hats off to the entire team that put this together and i was in tears oh, within the first two you. minutes it's a remarkable film and i put my heartiest endorsement behind it for anybody mm. who is open to being educated by it getting back to how the film played out how far along were you in the shooting when in 2018, the Woolsey fire, which broke out on the Santa Susana field lab and added a whole other dimension to the story. How far along were you with it when Woolsey broke out? We were having conversations with Melissa. This was November of 2018, having conversations. We had just shot, I guess it was the week before with her on Halloween, a nice afternoon, evening with us and her family where we all went trick-or-treating and probably had too much candy. And we were having conversations about how to wrap the film up, what the ending was gonna be. And then out of nowhere, the Woolsey fire hits. And what you started to learn, I think Denise sent the first email to us, Denise Duffield, who's PSRLA in the film. She sent the first email about where the possible location of the starting point of the fire was and that potentially being on the site. And so we said to ourselves, okay, we need to take a step back here and see how this story develops and how it'll play its way into Melissa's story, but also the effects of Santa Susana. And from there, things sort of just snowballed because we met more people. People were willing to speak up, I think, because much like you see in the film, the Kardashians sort of brought it back to the public's attention. And after that happened, people were willing to talk. For us, that was nice to finally get some yeses per se, to interview requests. I wanted to get to that point because there are a few places in the film where you put up informational cards with writing on them that speak to the fact that despite requests, the Department of Energy, the California Department of Toxic Substances Control, DTSC, Boeing, and others had interview requests that they turned down. They were, did not want to be interviewed for this film. Were you expecting that? How did you roll with that information when it came in? Yeah, we were expecting that. And I know with those companies, agencies, organizations that they deal with plenty of media requests on a daily basis. So when something from three unknown filmmakers comes in their way, they think, eh, you know, we don't need to worry about that. So a decline to comment was to be expected. And to be fair, it's understood because again, we were three unknown, are three unknown filmmakers. And, you know, in their eyes, as far as a company goes, there's no reason to reach out unless they really have something they want to say. And I think there's more to that maybe in the subtext, but no, we weren't necessarily surprised by that. Melissa, as Derek mentioned, you received support from Kim Kardashian in regard to Santa Susana Field Lab. How did that happen? How did that come about? What did that look like? And what might that speak to about her continuing involvement? Well, first, I want to say that Kim and Courtney Kardashian are lovely women and really fierce mom. You know, you see the Hollywood them and then them at home. And, and I was just really so thankful they got involved. It started with the Woolsey fire and we tweeted out we were concerned because we had tried to reach the California Air Quality Control, actually did reach them, the, the board. They decided not to issue a air quality warning. 
and we were concerned the next day that the children would be out in their schools breathing in what has proven to be contaminated smoke and ash. Well, we know at least from the water. So she saw our tweet. She retweeted it. All of a sudden we have a hundred thousand new signatures on the petition. And again, like, like Derek said, that brought in other elected officials, people maybe who had kind of been on the sidelines realizing, you know, I think she's got like 80 million followers on Twitter. She's a powerhouse. I think people don't really quite realize that. And so when she was willing to get involved with us, she actually had Denise and I and another friend on the show keeping up with the Kardashians. They came to our 50th anniversary event and they just continued to tweet. They tweeted about the film coming out the other day. They've tweeted about, you know, when we got into really serious situations where we needed public attention to be focused on, they'll, they'll tweet about it. So they've just been very generous with their privilege and we're incredibly thankful for them. Now that the film has started to pop out through a film festival circuit, a digital film festival circuit, it's still in limited accessibility, but what has been the response to it? Melissa, what has been the response within the moms and the community that you're in contact with around Santa Susana Field Lab? All the families that I know have just been sending in text messages and calls and emails saying how grateful they are that this story was told. A lot of the families on the film have lost children. I know for my daughter, it's, it's empowering when you see that you've suffered, but now there's something that might come good of it or might be you know, able to stop other children from getting cancer. So there's a lot of gratitude. And again, I think an appreciation for how tenderly they treated the subject. You know, I'm looking forward to it going even bigger, which I know it will. It's not that anybody wants SSFL to be a household name. And yet I think that's what we need to get our cleanup. And then again, to take that to other places across the nation. I think the parallel for me would be the film Atomic Homefront and what that did to focus attention on the need for the Westlake landfill cleanup in North St. Louis. And it was successful in really accelerating and putting undeniable attention on an issue in a way that wouldn't happen from just a bunch of people calling a representative and being foofed off. Derek, how about you? What have you been hearing back about the film? My mom said she loved it. We've been hearing great things, but I think for us, it's tricky because for us, the thing that's most important is that we want people to see it for the sake of the community, for the sake of Melissa and, and everyone to bring awareness to it. So being able to get it out in front of as, as many people as we can, even in these early stages, we're in our second festival. And again, like I told you in the beginning, it's only available because of COVID and the virtual situation. We're just trying to strategize how we can get it in front of as many eyes as we can, knowing that you know feedback's gonna be mixed. Of course, we're gonna have negative reviews, that's fine. That comes with the territory, but the goal is to get eyes on it and bring awareness to it. So, so far, so good. On the heels of what Melissa said earlier, Kim and Courtney Kardashian using their platform to raise awareness and to, to put eyes on the film and the situation, things like that. I, I would call that a little thing, but it's not. It's a huge thing. Things like that make a big difference and make you feel like, okay, we're doing something that might create some traction, fingers crossed. Hopefully it, it picks up. And like Melissa said, Santa Susana can be put in different areas around this country. 
the map in the film shows there's quite a few of them. So there are a lot of communities that have similarities with Simi Valley and the surrounding area. What are the distribution plans for the film? Oh gosh, we're so green. We're so new to this. Cross our fingers and say a couple prayers, I guess. Um, we are going to enjoy the festival circuit for a couple reasons. Uh, it was something that we always wanted to do for a little bit, but also because we have a little more, control might be the wrong word, but we have a little more hands-on control in the sense that we know where it's going, as opposed to when distribution hits, a situation like Netflix, Amazon, HBO, that's the dream, that would be amazing. But we also know that there's a stage, a layer of views that come before that. And being that this is a current issue, we'll gladly speak with anyone that's interested, but we're going to enjoy the festival circuit while it's available to us. Where is the film available right now as we are talking on April 9th, 2021? It is available through the Cleveland International Film Festival streaming platform. We will link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, oh. under this episode, number 512, because we think it's really important that people take a look at what this story is. I've covered it in chunks through the years, including interviewing Dan Hirsch, Denise Duffield, Melissa. I have been at some of the events that they've had. This is a thorough soup to nuts covering that really gets into all the details in the right way. And that brings me to the heart of the movie. And the heart of the movie, Melissa, is you and your daughter, the moms, the kids, the ones that have survived, and the ones who sadly have not. There was a moment in the beginning of the film that shows you speaking in front of I forget what group of quote unquote experts it was. That was a meeting in front of the Los Angeles Water Control Department that we were testifying right after the Woolsey fire. They had 57 exceedances, which is huge. I actually have a neighbor who works for DTSC and I saw her while the Woolsey fire was still burning. And she said, oh yeah, we've been out there. There's not a problem. And she couldn't hear it, she, but she also doesn't wear a mask. so. That's just who she is. But what really struck me in that first two minutes of the film was you saying, speaking of your daughter and the picture of love that you have for your child, for your children, and beyond that, for the other children, really touched my heart. But in this case, you held up a necklace of beads and you said that for each one of the procedures she goes through she gets what were they called a courage bead beads of courage is a foundation that gives these out to pediatric cancer children and it was this you know pretty much I mean if it was pearls it would be like mid-length necklace and you said that was from her first month and here's what else she has gone through and you started pulling out yard after yard after yard, and it was such a visual that my mind was rioting and thinking, stop already, stop. How can somebody that young be put through so much is just heartbreaking. And from that human beginning to then find out the malfeasance and the lies and the cover-up and all the rest of it, and then bring it back to the mother's 
the children in North St. Louis, it was the mothers who did it. Here again, it is the mothers who are bringing this forward. It was tremendously powerful because it put a human face. And I have to ask, how is your daughter doing now? Thank you for asking. Yeah, she's three years cancer-free. She had um, an anonymous donor. 10 out of 10 match saved her life with a bone marrow transplant. So we're incredibly thankful. But I, I will also say that she will have lifelong health effects from the treatment she received to save her life. And 80% of all pediatric cancer survivors will have a life-threatening health condition by age 40. I just want to throw that in because people, I don't think people realize how traumatic childhood cancer is. They think it's sad because they lost their hair, but it is inhumane. And so um, we're so thankful she's a survivor. We're so thankful that she's doing so well. You've already put this out, Derek, a little bit, but if you were to put out a vision of where this film would go, what it would achieve, and what it would lead to, say, for your career, as well as to the cleanup of Santa Susana, what would that be? Well, you mentioned Atomic Homefront, and I'll say that that's something that we watched early on because we were trying to download sort of information and how-tos to tell a story like this. They did an amazing job to get that in front of the public's eye. And I think looking forward, that is the goal. Get it in front of the public's eye. However that happens, that's how we'll take it. And we know technology is evolving and moving quickly. And there seems to be a new streaming platform every day that's available. So whoever is, is interested in putting Melissa and Gracie's story on their streaming platform, we'll take that with the world. Uh, that, that would be amazing. And in terms of career, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. This is current and this is present and this takes priority over everything. So I haven't really thought that far ahead. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I'm having for dinner tonight. So that might just be me. And Melissa, where do you see this going and how much longer, how much further, how much harder are we going to have to push and how much smarter are we going to have to push to get this cleanup? Well, I think Derek was right saying like it's a community effort and this situation, it's going to be a national effort. And I think that as more and more voices are starting to speak up saying this is what's happening in my community, you know, the, the public awareness as a whole is I think they're going to start questioning what is happening, first of all, and what is right and what is wrong and, and what are the policies and the laws in place that are allowing this to happen and how can those be changed? Originally, this was not my direction for my life. I had a very quiet little life planned out that I was really happy about. But now I feel like this is the path God has me on and there's a lot of people who need help. It's like one of those situations, you can't unlearn it once you've learned it. And I don't know that I could sleep at night knowing that I wasn't still doing something to help when there's so many even just locally, so many families suffering from this. So probably do this till I die. And hopefully that's not soon because <laughs> it's so stressful, so stressful, so exhausting. But, um, you know, luckily, like Derek said, the one thing that comes out of this is how many amazing people that we've been able to meet, the support networks that have come around us. So I know, I know we'll get through. I'm, I've got a lot of hope and actually a huge amount of that hope comes from the documentary because it's so hard to learn about these things in so many levels. And the documentary just really breaks through 
to help people understand. And again, not just the facts, but the heart of the real problem. Derek, if people were to contact you or get on a mailing list in your database somewhere to get updates about the film and where it is available, how can they do that? We do have a website. It is in the darkthevalley.com. Very proud of getting that domain. And we're going to keep that platform active in terms of, you know, the media and future festivals, as well as story points. So for example, if something else breaks in the papers, uh, or Melissa has more news for us, we're going to put it on that platform so that people are current. And that's something that we tried to do towards the end of the film with the credits, because, you know, like I said, in the beginning, you can't tell this story in a hundred minutes. So we want to be able to give people a place to check in if they want to. Great. We will link to that as well on nuclearhotseat.com under this episode. Any final thoughts from either of you? I think to be able to do what Melissa is doing and has been doing and to take that on knowing what Gracie went through and what Luke went through and what Chad, her husband, went through. I think that takes a special person and that's something that not all of us have characteristics that not all of us have. Um, I certainly don't know how it's done. And I just want to say, Melissa and the community that allowed us to come into their homes to answer a question you asked before, and I didn't mention what I should have, that's how this project got done, is, is the community being open to us telling that story and Melissa being an Avenger of sorts, a superhero, and allowing us to follow along, tag along and loiter in various meetings that we're extremely grateful for. And we hope the final product tells her story in a way that makes her proud. Melissa, I know you're listening and you're right there, but that's what my final thought is. Melissa? It's hard to say anything after that, really. If people would like to sign our petition, it's change.org backslash Santa Susanna. We also have a parent against SSFL.com where we have all of our updates and links and research. The one good thing that I've seen come through this, I think, is that I think people underestimate their own power and their own importance from Girl Scout troop leaders to mailmen to dog walkers. I mean, each of us has like a little domino that is in the bigger game. And when we set them all in place by doing whatever we can to make the world right, you just never know what domino you're going to set off, what set of action that could really make a huge change without you realizing it. And so I don't think that you have to be trying to fight a nuclear meltdown site to really make a big difference in the world. And I would just so thankful for the people who give them what they have to give. And I think that is what makes all the differences when we all work together. I'm certainly grateful that the two of you work together to create what is, I believe, ultimately a game-changing film as it comes to the awareness of more and more people. We'll certainly do what we can here on this show. And for now, besides my gratitude for the film that you made, I'm deeply grateful that you have been with me this week as my guests on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. That was Simi Valley mother Melissa Bumstead and film producer Derek Smith. We will have links up on the website to Parents Against Santa Susana Field Lab, and that link will lead you to ways to get involved, their events calendar, updates, research links, and more. 
There will also be a link to the petition at change.org slash Santa Susanna, which calls for the comprehensive cleanup of the Santa Susanna Field Lab site and has over 730,000 signatures. Make certain you add yours. And In the Dark of the Valley is available until April 20, 2021 at the Cleveland International Film Festival. We'll have a link up to where you can buy your online ticket, and we will keep you abreast of where the film will be available in the coming months. Activists, Activists shout out, shout out, shout out. On a sad note, we wish to acknowledge the passing of activist Phil Arnott, who is 96 and three quarters years old. Phil had been a World War II bomber pilot over Germany who became an environmental activist, anti-nuclear lecturer, and storyteller. He worked with Physicians for Social Responsibility and spoke with them as a volunteer more than 50 times. He was based in Marin County, California, and he will be missed by his associates and all those who work so steadfastly to tell the uncomfortable truths about nuclear and promote action against it. Speaking of action, there's been a lot of it, and some important Zoominars are coming up, and some important series have been posted. This is fast, but on April 15, the Native American Club will be presenting on Fermi Issues, Dangers, and Alternative Energy Options. The Fermi Reactor is on the shores of Lake Erie, halfway between Detroit, Michigan, and Toledo, Ohio. Featured speaker will be Jesse Deer in Water. And on April 24th, there will be a Zoominar on building political support for the Nuclear Ban Treaty. It will take place as of 10.30 in the morning Eastern Daylight Time here in the United States and is being presented by the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Fairwinds Energy Education has a new Nuclear Spring series. Highly informative, highly vetted, this consists of videos and articles. And Beyond Nuclear International has started a new series on talking points. Key message points needed to make the case against nuclear power, drawn from scholarly works and peer-reviewed reports, and condensed into compelling arguments of fact. I wish I'd had these available almost 10 years ago when I was starting the show. In any event, we will link to all of this on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 512. And our thanks to both Fairwinds Energy Education and Beyond Nuclear International for highlighting to your followers Nuclear Hot Seat episode number 509, Three Mile Island Nuclear Meltdown at 42, Never Forget. Nothing means more than the acknowledgement and respect of one's peers. And here's the latest Nuclear Hot Seat ranking news. We just debuted in Norway at number 43 under Business Podcasts. Now, if you'd like to help us accumulate more and better rankings on this new service that I'm using, just download Nuclear Hot Seat from Apple Podcasts. Heck, download a whole bunch of them. That can be in addition to getting it via email every week if you've signed up to get the show that way. It will all help to support some future moves that are being planned out for the show to expand and reach even more people. If you can help with that, many thanks. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 13, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, 
beyondnuclearinternational.com, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, kingsbayplowshare7.org, and that's the number seven, thecentersquare.com, grandcanyontrust.org, thedailybeast.com, Erica Gray, Jim Torson, yahoo.com, theguardian.com, futurism.com, fairwinds.org, mainichi.jp, nhk.or.jp, asahi.com, newyorktimes.com, Norbert Suchenek and the International Uranium Film Festival, luxurylaunches.com, sgvv.org, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If you have an interest in a nuclear issue that was not covered on today's show, you can go to the website, nuclearhotseat.com, and search for the subject of your choice. We have over 500 episodes with material in it, and whatever your nuclear concern, you will find it there somewhere. Now, I mentioned the email before, and I'm going to do it again. You can get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email to your inbox every week, and it's real easy to do. Just go to nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down or look around for the yellow opt-in box, and sign up with your first name and an email address to get the latest show. You will get it as soon as it is posted on the internet. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment and go to nuclearhotseat.com. There's a great big red button there, and if you click on it and follow the prompts, Know that anything you can do to help us out will help us out, and we really do appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that dangerously radioactive nuclear waste is forever. So let's stop making any more of it now. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.